All right, so um, we've been in the book of Philippians. We started this, this is now week five, so we started this a little while ago, um, and uh, definitely looking forward to uh, today's message and, and getting into this. I hope it's been good with this, this uh, series called Joy Even Though, and it's this idea that Paul is continuing to have joy even in the midst of you know, uh, being in chains and persecution, um, but he's seeing the gospel go forth and God doing great things. And so he's saying that he's having this joy, even though, uh, and, and, and it, it allows us as we watch Paul, as he reflects on things and he encourages the Philippian church, how he too, how we too ought to live um, in light of what he's done. And so um, we're going to be today in Philippians chapter one, and uh, looking just at a handful of verses, verses 27 through 30, um, should be on the screen. But let me read this for you, and then we'll get into this. Um, so, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but uh, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day. I pray that you will bless us as we study your word and help us, Lord, to understand and to be transformed by the power of your spirit in a way that leads us to uh, be faithful to the calling that we have in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in college, I became... I mean, I was never a great student, and by great student, I say I didn't really apply myself. But in college, I, I noticed that people were very uh, intense about the idea that if there's going to be a test, then I need to know what's on the test. You know, it's like this whole thing, like how do I know whether, what to study or how, I'm, or how I can pass the test? And it's easy, you gotta ask the professor like what's going to be on the test or how do I know, you know, where should I look to find the material so that I can, I can study up and be good to, to go. And it, it strikes up this interesting thing that essentially if you go and take a test but you don't know what's on the test or you don't know the standard by which you're supposed to be doing things, it can become increasingly difficult. I early on in my education life really used to struggle with this. I don't know if you remember this in elementary school, but they used to do these things where they would hand you science worksheets that would have things for you to do at home. And I, or at least that's the way we did it in my school. I'd have to run experiments. And in particular, uh, what I struggled with was that if I didn't see it first, then I didn't really know what to do. And it led to all kinds of jacked up expectations on my part. In particular, I remember in the fourth grade, there was a homework assignment that I got in trouble for not doing. Not because I didn't do the experiment that was in front of me, but more so because I did not understand what was required and expected of me. And in this particular science experiment, it said, you're going to form clouds. And so I thought I was going to have clouds in my living room. And so it involved like 
water, ice, glass cup, and what I was supposed to be doing was learning about the condensation that's formed on the side of the glass. But since the title of the worksheet said forming clouds, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I didn't see any clouds. I struggled with this thing for a while. Um, and you know, my mom was at work, so I, it's not like I, I, I was going to ask her and I really didn't ask for help and I didn't ask my brother. I didn't ask anybody. So, you know, like I just didn't know what to do. So I thought I failed this whole thing. I get to class and it turns out that the condensation, that's, that's what I was going after. It was precipitation. We're learning about precipitation, not clouds. It, you know, it just distracted me in my nine-year-old mind. And so you, we get into this whole thing that had I had somebody there to explain to me what I was supposed to be expected, uh, what, the, what the standards were. And it turns out all the other kids, their parents helped them do this particular thing. Uh, so they ask their parents for help. But I sell this to say that expectations are very important. And in this concept, as Paul is laying out this idea of a worthy life, he's going to give them, uh, the Philippian church, an understanding of what is expected or what is required. What does it look like to have a worthy life? You can tell people, have a, live a worthy life. But if I don't know what a worthy life is or what it looks like, then how do I know that I've hit the mark? Can you give me the syllabus or can you explain to me how this is supposed to look? And Paul obliges and lays out. He doesn't just call them to a worthy life. In this particular passage, he spells out to them what a worthy life actually looks like. And I'll say this, if, uh, d- just, just to summarize this whole thing as our main idea is this, is that a worthy life is one that testifies to the glory of and identifies with the suffering of Christ. It's what a worthy life is or what a worthy life does. It identifies with the suffering of Christ and it testifies to the glory of the suffering of Christ. It testifies to how that Jesus died and rose again, and it and it and it and also leads you to identify personally with the suffering of Christ. So today we're going to look very briefly at what it means to walk in a manner worthy. So first of all, walking in a manner worthy means first of all knowing where you belong. Walking in a manner worthy means knowing where. You belong. That's the first thing. We see this in this first verse. Verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether, um, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in the Spirit. But that first part, only let your manner of life be worthy. It's very interesting. This phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, can also be translated from the Greek, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. So it's not just only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It also can mean, or also be translated, uh, scholars, point out, uh, scholars will point out, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Within this idea of walking in a manner worthy and under this understanding of citizenship, we see that Paul points the people of Philippi to understand that they aren't just citizens of Rome. They would have understood this and the, the, the rights and privileges that being a citizen of Rome extended to a Roman citizen. And yet, 
What Paul says is that what's more important is to understand that you have a greater citizenship, a higher citizenship that guides who you are. And in fact, it's not to say that the other citizenships don't matter. Like, understand this. I am an alumni of Houston Baptist University. I'm a double alum at that. I gave them my undergrad and my master's degree money. And so I'm a double alum. And as an alumni, it's so funny. I was at a graduation party for a high schooler yesterday who's going to HBU uh, here in the fall. And it's exciting. And in the invitation, which I did not follow this because none of my HBU gear that fits was clean. uh, But they were like, if you're a former Husky, then wear your HBU stuff. I didn't wear mine. It's dirty. I had one shirt. It's a medium. I'm not a medium anymore. Uh, I got that while I was in college. I, I can't wear that now. And so uh, I, I, I couldn't fit in it. My other stuff wasn't clean. I normally wear it as an undershirt anyway. And so I didn't wear it. But you're wearing these things. Now, here's the thing. When I got the diploma from HBU, there's a little card that they give you, uh, not just your diploma, but it's like a, it's a pocket diploma. And on one side, it says everything that the diploma says. And on the back side, it says that this diploma uh, gives you all the rights and privileges associated with and benefits associated with uh, being a graduate. I don't even know if some of you fellow Huskies in here remember this particular thing. I remember looking at it. And if one of the things that it is allowed you to go into the bookstore and get a discount uh, of like 10% or whatever it is on, on, on random things, but not like candy or something like that. But it gives you, it gives you discounts. And what, basically, wherever I go, I can say I'm an HBU Husky. And that will open up doors as other people know. And here's the thing. I am uh, HBU Husky, but my allegiance to Houston Baptist University doesn't supersede my allegiance as being a citizen of the United States. Like, it's not that this isn't important, and this does uh, conduct how I live and operate when I'm in HBU circles, but my highest allegiance isn't to a, a, to a university, at least as a citizen. My highest allegiance should be to the nation that, I'm, that I live in. But what Paul says and takes it a step further, it's like, look, that citizenship that you have, it's not that it's not important, and it should govern how you live, but your higher citizenship, the highest citizenship that you have, is one who belongs to the kingdom of God. And when you know where you belong, and where you belong to and where your greatest blessing and treasure is, it leads you to live in a very particular way. But you think about citizenship, citizens of God's kingdom, not simply citizens of the empire of the world. There are things that are important about citizenship. And why is this important? Citizenship gives you an identity, gives you an identity with a greater whole. When you are a citizen of something, then that by default means that you identify with a greater group. There's something bigger than you. There's something with greater value, uh, greater uh, uh, honor than just yourself that you're living towards. You're a part of a whole. Citizenship provides you with basic rights. Not only are you a part of a whole, but there are rights associated with being a citizen of wherever you're from. And there's a framework that gives, that lays these things out. Here in the United States, we've got a bill of rights that literally is the rights that a citizen has. These things apply to anybody who is a citizen under legal standing, right legal standing within these borders. This is how you ought to be treated and the rights that are afforded you by virtue of being a citizen. It's not just that. Citizenship puts you under the jurisdiction of authority. 
that literally the reason why there are rights is that when people violate those rights or you violate those rights, there is an authority that is there to govern punishment, boundaries, and not just that, they have, the, they have the responsibility, that authority that's over you. Primary responsibility is to ensure the safety and prosperity of the people under that authority. Citizenship provides also a framework for behavior. How are we to act as a culture and a community? What morals will we condone or what morals will we Uh, Moral values will we uh, promote versus moral values that we will, you know, uh, frown upon. It's what becomes important. And so Paul comes and he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your lives or, or behave as citizens, as people who are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He frames this thing up perfectly by starting off telling the people in Philippi to remember who you belong to and where you belong. That no matter how much you love being from Philippi, no matter how much you love being a Roman citizen, no matter how great those things are, it is nothing in comparison to the citizenship and that you have in heaven knowing that you belong to the king of kings and the lord of lords who sits high and governs and has authority over all things who created all things and all things are, are subject to his rule and reign remember where you belong remember who you belong to it's vital vitally important for you to remember Look, I tell you what, I, I spent uh, one year um, not living in the state of Texas. I went to Nashville and, uh, for my freshman year of college. And I can tell you this much. And I've traveled around the world some, but in terms of actually living for a while. Uh, this is what cracked me up when I was at, at, in Nashville. I'm in the heart of SEC country, which is just weird. Um, you know, Georgia, can, can, it's, hard. it's hard for me. I'm a diehard North Carolina Tar Heel fan, so it's hard for me to actually say Kentucky versus Kentucky. Um, but but, uh, but Kentucky, you know, if anybody's listening uh, this week that's from Kentucky, I apologize that you're from there. Um, just joking. Uh, kind of. But, um, you know, the, Georgia, Mississippi, the, you know, it's a bunch of people from there um, in SEC country. I mean, we're in Nashville, so, you know, Tennessee, Knox, uh, you know, volunteers, Knoxville's uh, like an hour or two down the road or whatever. Um, and then we had Vanderbilt in the city. So these SEC schools doing their thing. And there's all these allegiances. But what cracked me up about uh, Tennessee is it, when I was in Tennessee is that at Belmont, the people from Texas, which was a sizable group of people. Um, keep in mind, Belmont University, Christian University is like the premier spot for a country and Christian music um, business in the country. And so uh, Belmont, big music school, uh, a ton of the music musicians and artists that you listen to in Christian and country music either went to school there or recorded in the studios there. It was absolutely insane. You'd be walking around and you just, it's, you know, just like playing ultimate Frisbee on the lawn with us as students is, you know, like this Christian artist and that person and, and this guy, Michael W. Smith's going to do a, a master class on piano just randomly 
over here, or you know these people are are, are you know doing this, or Vince Gill is uh, do, you know playing basketball or doing all. The, I mean, they were just all over the place. It was it was a very interesting environment. So I sell that to say that in that environment, ton of Texas people obviously come to this music school, and so it was actually like a Texas club, um, and it wasn't small. Uh, and what people would do is every time they went home for any kind of break, fall break, winter break, whatever it was, spring break, they would bring things from Texas, including Bucky's products and things like that, and just come and like live the greatness that is Texas. And if we're really honest as Texans, we carry a certain amount of uh, swag and pride on our shoulders uh, that most other states don't actually ever um, don't actually ever, you know, have. Uh, and, and so uh, we are proud Texans. I'm very proud to be a Texan. I talk smack to people that have junk to say about this state. I'm proud that I was born here and I love Houston. And it's funny too. It's like the, the cities in Texas, we fight amongst each other about which one's the best. And yet, no matter what, it's like, but at least you're in Texas when it all comes down to that. Like I can hate San Antonio as much as I want. But man, that's still Texas. Like, like we're Texas. And when I meet somebody from Texas, when I'm outside of Texas, like, that's right. You understand how much better it is here. But no matter how much we love being from Houston and from Texas subsequently, it's nothing in comparison. And the church in Philippi had the same thing. Great pride to be Philippians. But there's nothing that like understanding that it's greater to be a part of the kingdom of God than it is to be a part of of some other thing. So the first thing is that walking in a manner worthy means knowing where you belong. The second thing is that walking in a manner worthy means a life that testifies. It means a life that testifies. What do we mean? Looking at the second part of verse 17 or verse 27. So um, it says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So um, we have this idea that Paul is saying, not only do you walk in a manner that's worthy, but I want it to be that whether I come to see you in person or not, I can hear the testimony of what you are doing for the kingdom. And it's interesting that the report of the body of Christ advancing the kingdom of God does several things. This testimony. First of all, the testimony gives joy to other believers. One of the reasons why it's important is because when other believers hear about the kingdom of God, because when you know where you belong to, then when you hear about the movement and advancement of the kingdom that you belong to, it brings you joy. And so Paul says, when I'm here in chains and I hear of what God is doing through you, it brings me joy. It should bring you joy to hear about what God is doing. When somebody shares the gospel, it brings you joy. When somebody is able to lead somebody to Christ, it brings us joy. When somebody prays for somebody, it brings you joy. When you hear about the miraculous work that God does through somebody, it brings you joy. It brings us joy to hear about what God is doing. And so one of the things that becomes important is that our life, when we walk worthy, it brings people joy. But it's not just that it brings other believers joy. 
It brings your joy because it's able to travel even when you aren't present. I don't have to be there, but the works that we do for God, the good, think about this, that he literally lays out good works for us, that he planned beforehand for us to do, that when we do those things, the, the testimony travels ahead of us. That is to say that God does things and is able to touch and move through the work that you're doing, even when you aren't there to tell somebody about it. That's incredible. I want you to think about this. In Paul's own life, when he became a believer, it was a while before the, believer, the, the apostles were willing to meet with him. I mean, keep in mind, he was going around killing Christians, so it's not like they were jumping in line to go hang out with him. Barnabas becomes vitally important in vouching for Paul on, before the apostles to bring him into their company. But here's the part that's important, and Paul talks about this several times uh, uh, throughout his ministry, and, and uh, Luke uh, records this in the book of Acts, is that when he became a believer and started sharing the gospel, the testimony of Paul being a former prosecutor of the, persecutor of the church, and now being one of the chief evangelists for the church, that news went out before the church all around, and people began to celebrate Our testimony travels even when we aren't present. I want you to think about this. None of us have met Paul. None of us have met Peter. None of us have met Barnabas. None of us have met any of the people that we read about today. But the testimony of what they've done has traveled for 2,000 years forward. Testimony travels. Testimony moves even when you're not present. But also testimony brings unity is what we see here, what Paul says and how he admonishes. He talks about this idea that I may hear of you um, uh, um, standing side by side, standing side uh, for the faith of the uh, standing, standing. I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The idea is that your testimony is going to bring unity. It's going to bring people together. It's going to bring us together. Victory brings unity. A couple years ago when the Astros won the World Series, um, you know, I, I grew up playing baseball. I'm not as big a baseball fan now as I uh, was as a kid, but Astros, deep fan of them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when the Astros won the World Series, um, those championship shirts immediately were selling at Academy. And I'm not, not going to lie to you. I don't know where this comes from. If I went to counseling, I'm sure uh, we could get to the bottom of this. But I have like a strong aversion to lines. I don't wait for anything. I don't like to sit in line for anything. You can ask my wife. If I'm driving in traffic, even if doing extra turns and things like that takes the same amount of time as sitting in this like little traffic jam, I would rather move than just sit here. I don't. It just it, it makes my back itch. Like that's how bad I hate it. Uh, and so when the idea of getting these championship shirts came around, I was like, I'm not going to do that. So my in-laws uh, woke up super early, 5 a.m., got in line and got all of us um, grandkids in- 
included, if I remember correctly, a bunch of T-shirts. However, whatever the max number of shirts you could buy, that's what they stood in. Uh, my father-in-law stood in line at Academy and got those, and it was great. So he gets me this championship shirt, and I'm not going to lie, the Astros uh, orange championship shirt is pure fire. So uh, I put that thing on, and I would wear it. Now, a phenomenon began as I would wear this shirt um, in the year after the championship. It used to crack me up, and no matter where I went, whenever I was wearing that shirt, old people because baseball is definitely a sport that the older generations appreciate a lot more um, than the younger generations. Um, I'm sorry to the one baseball fan that's here. It's true. M MLB is struggling to figure out the generational gap. Um, but that being said, uh, it's this great American pastime. And so in particular, old people everywhere that I would go would just walk up to me randomly. And I'll be honest, I've, uh, I've lived in this city a long time. Old people, generally speaking, will just walk up to me and say things. But they would walk up and be like, hey, so uh, we won there, didn't we? You know, uh, and it used to crack me up. I'm like, yeah, 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 we did. And it's like, yeah, it's great. It's, it's just great. You know, and they would do this whole thing and they just start talking to me about the Astros. And it's hilarious because um, like, we're Astros fans. Our team won. So we're celebrating. Um, uh, we're being brought together because of the fact that the team won. Now, here's the hilarious part. Uh, neither me nor the old person that I was talking to, men and women alike, these old people would just come to just celebrate. It really cracked me up when old ladies would come up to me just beaming, uh, you know, uh, wearing a visor and a fanny pack, being like, oh my gosh you are so, like, the Astros are so great, and I was like, yeah, they won, you know, and we talk about uh, Altuve and all those guys, and it was great, but it used to crack me up as we're having these conversations. Now, here's the funny part in all of this is that uh, neither one of us can swing a bat or catch. Um, I can't throw uh, worth a lick uh, in terms of accuracy. That's the part that kills me. How do you throw that hard and that accurate, you know? Good for you. Even the worst of pitchers uh, in Major League Baseball would make any one of us regular people look like a joke. So I didn't swing a bat. I didn't catch anything. I wasn't a part of any of that, uh, any of that series against the Dodgers uh, to do any of that stuff. That was not me. But here's the thing. Because we're part of the same team, we're fans of the team, we're on, we, you, like we identify with this team, we were able to celebrate. We were able to uh, come together. And because they won, we won. And then there was a parade in the city. And people just went nuts in the city in downtown like they won we won you won I identify with that and so we celebrate and we're unified coming together I remember there was this video uh, in a parking garage as the streets of Houston were just lined where somebody like dropped a hat or a bottle or something like that and so people from the ground level were tossing that thing up from level to level of the parking garage all the way up to the top person so they could get it again I mean, it was absolutely absolutely insane I don't remember how many people went to the parade Hundreds of thousands of people were definitely there. Uh, I dare say a million or something like that, I, but I don't really remember the m number. I just remember it was insane. I personally was like, I'm going to stay away from downtown Houston. That sounds awful. Uh, in the middle of the day when it's hot, uh, I'm good. So I didn't go, but I remember watching it. Like the victory brought unity, brought unity. But here's the part that's amazing for us in our faith. You did not pay the debt for your sins. 
You did not sit on the cross. You didn't bear the crown of thorns. Nobody mocked you. Nobody gambled for your clothing. None of those things happened. And yet Jesus was able to win complete victory over sin and death and rise again three days later because of the work that he did. And he gives us the blessing and opportunity to be a part of the work that he's doing, even though we are not qualified to do any of it. As we read earlier in Colossians 1, he qualifies us to share in the inheritance of life. It is incredible what Jesus has done. His victory on the field leads to our unity as he calls us to work. It's incredible. And what Paul says here, as he's pointing to the Philippian church, and in chapter 4, we'll get into weeks down, uh, uh, down the road from here, maybe what the source of some of the disunity might have been in the Philippian church. But what we do know this is that he's saying that no matter where you stand on these issues that are troubling you right now, you should continue to walk in unity and pursue Christ. That's what kills me when people, you know, we have these social issues. And so there's one side of people that say, like, all you need is the gospel. And it's like, okay. And then other people be like, yeah, but I mean, the gospel isn't going to get our differences to be resolved. And when we say that the gospel is the answer for racism or the answer for this, we're not saying that the gospel simply washes over whatever it is that's uh, besieging you. What we are saying is that the gospel is the motivation to put down the swords that we would fight with and instead come together and celebrate Jesus. The testimony of the work that God does brings about joy and unity. Let me move quickly. It also is a sign for non-believers. You see this uh, in verse 28, the idea that ultimately even the people that oppose the kingdom of God, even those people would, would, would be able to recognize and identify that it is God who's doing things that's giving the victory. It's a clear sign to those that oppose the gospel that, you, that they are on the wrong side. They're on the losing side. The ultimate goal for them is that they would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But don't be mistaken. Jesus has won the victory. So, like we said, the second thing um, is that walking in a manner worthy means a life that testifies. Thirdly, walking in a manner worthy means embracing suffering as a gift. Verse 29 talks about this. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Not only believe, but suffer for his sake. Belief in him is an incredible thing that we get to believe in Jesus and be saved from sin, but he, sin, but he also gives us the opportunity to uh, partake in suffering as well. Suffering for him is this idea that it's like next level goodness. Once again, in our response or our, our, in our time of reflection during worship, we read Colossians 1, 9 through 14, which I'll read again for you. Uh, not that you have to turn there, but it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, feel fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glory. Glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And verse 13, which becomes so pivotal in this, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That literally, it's not just that he gave us, it's like Paul begins to lay out to the Colossian church like how good salvation is. But he's given us all these things so that in verse uh, uh, 11, we can have endurance and patience. You don't need endurance and patience if there's nothing difficult that's going to come. And so we have the opportunity then to be partakers in suffering. You're like, how in the world is that a good thing? I'm telling you, it's a good thing. Why? Because the suffering comes from the, from the fact that you are now involved in bringing the message of hope to the hopeless. I mean, think about it. It might be difficult work. There might be people that come against you. But it's worth it. It's worth it. We all experienced Hurricane Harvey uh, a few years back, four years ago this fall, I believe. I believe it was 2017. Uh, you know, uh, late hurricanes, mid hurricane season, something like that um, in 2017. It was interesting. At that time, I was uh, working for a church as a campus pastor and overseeing missions. And so we began to muck out homes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we began to do rebuilding. And then there was even a point where, uh, uh, you know, there were some hotels in, in, in Las Vegas who were remodeling, and so they were sending all of this furniture, and it was four 18-wheelers worth of furniture uh, every single week, and so we got this warehouse out in the middle of Alvin, and we set this thing up, and we were having people come through and uh, for, you know, for free get new furniture and things like that, and ironing boards and mirrors. They were just basically taking everything that's in a hotel room and saying, here, uh, all the art and things like that that you, I mean, it's everything that you can imagine, couches and chairs. We had worked out uh, 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 deals with local um, uh, furniture stores and things like that, that if that wasn't good, that people could get discounted rates on things. We were doing so much work. It was crazy. And for six months, it was grueling. But what I never heard from any of our volunteers that had to show up on a Thursday at 8 a.m. and unload uh, four 18-wheelers, and generally speaking, the amount of people that are able to do that uh, isn't a lot. So you'd get like eight people unloading four 18-wheelers every single Thursday uh, and reorganizing that thing just so that on Saturday people could come through and pillage and ransack, and you would see people going out to gut people's homes, and like no matter how gross and disgusting it was, like people would continue to do it. Why? Because it was, uh, it was a blessing to be able to come alongside people in their hour of need and help them. And in the same way, the suffering that we endure, when we see that people are lost, when we see people like Jesus saw people, like in the, like in the book of John and in Matthew, when it says that they were like, like sheep without a shepherd, and so he continues to bless them. He continues to feed the 5,000. He continues to minister to them. When we see people as lost and in need of the, they're desperately in need of the grace of Jesus. 
like, then it doesn't matter what comes against us. What could be greater than the suffering that comes from doing that work? And so when, when you're walking a life that's worthy, it means that you embrace the suffering, not just like whatever, but it's a gift that God has literally given you this gift of suffering that allows you to be a part of the work that he's doing. How crazy is, is, it, is it that as guilty as you are of sin, that God would call you and allow you to be a part of what he's doing? And so it's a humble call to service that Paul points us to that allows you to uh, be a part of the redemptive work that God is doing, but embrace the suffering that comes through that. And that in order to help people, you've got to embrace the idea that it's going to be painful. So walking in a manner worthy means embracing suffering as a gift. Lastly, walking in a manner worthy means connecting to others suffering as well. In verse 30, it tells us that engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's suffering is meant to comfort them while they're suffering. It's not just that God has called you to suffer, but he's called us to connect with other believers who also are suffering for the same labor, the same pain, because we're on the same mission. We're citizens of the same kingdom. And so the testimony is going forth. Our life is a testimony and we're embracing suffering as a gift and we're connecting with others who are suffering within the body of Christ. Paul's suffering is able to comfort the Philippian church because it is in the service of God. He's suffering because he's serving God. But it's not just meant to encourage them for that reason. It's also because he continues to endure because he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, past tense, and now hear that I still have, present. And so it's not just that he did do the work. He's continuing to do the work. The continued work of suffering for the kingdom helps the other believers that hear of this to connect and to be strengthened in that. And why is that? Because he then says, when he says, and now you hear that I still have, it's because there's still work to be done. The reason why we continue on and we continue to connect with other believers is because there's still work to be done. There's still people that God is reconciling to himself. There's still people who are shackled by the bondages of sin and addiction that need to be set free. There's still marriages that are completely devastated and broken that God needs to be made whole. There's still people who've done the worst things that feel like there is no second chance for them. That God says, you're right, if I gave you a second chance, you'd mess it up. But guess what? My grace is sufficient for you, and that's why I didn't give you a second chance. I went and paid the penalty for your sins, and now you can have forgiveness and life. There's still work to be done. There's still uh, people to save. There's still people to break free. There's still work to be done. And because there's still work to be done, we continue to connect with other believers who are committed to the cause of Christ and, deal, and, and who identify with the suffering. And that, that connection with the suffering of others brings us collective joy as a community. And like, that's, by the way, before you're like, Mac, that sounds morbid. Isn't that the whole point of why we have alumni networks bringing this whole thing full circle? Like when you meet another alum of your a university or whatever it is, like, oh, you went through what I went through. So I'm excited. And then guess what? 
when you meet a current student, you get excited. You're like, oh, because you're going through what I went through, right? Right? And so we identify with the suffering, the late nights and the finals and the tests and the, all the things. We identify with that suffering. So all I'm saying is that we connect with others in suffering just like we would with anything else except this suffering has the highest meaning because we are serving the one true God who calls us to the work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost and tearing down strongholds. And so it's, you know, it's a life worth living. That's what it means to have a life that's worth living. That's the, the standard there. You've got to know where you belong. Your life has got to testify to the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. You have to embrace suffering as a gift from God and then connect to others suffering as you are all on the same mission. And if we do that, then I believe God will bless us, not just us now, but from the next generation on. We have to have a multi-generational view of what God is doing, as Paul did, as the apostles did. And so, that's what it means. And that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to live a life that's worthy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word.